turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You can find it in your pew Bible if you're using one on page 886. Uh, you can also find it in the bulletin if you have one. You can grab it there. You can kind of follow, follow along, and we will take a few minutes and uh, consider this text together. Romans 5, 1 through 11, arguably the most beautiful, glorious, incredible passage in all of, of Scripture. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm excited to consider this text with you guys uh, for a few minutes uh, this, this morning. Last year, when we were in the book of Romans, we looked at uh, chapters 1 through 4 uh, and saw the wrath of God and the, the grace of God, right? Paul kind of uh, works systematically to show that all humanity is under sin, under the wrath of God, Jews and Gentiles, uh, religious and non-religious, righteous and unrighteous, right? Uh, you know, everyone is under sin. Gentiles uh, and non-religious people have exchanged the glory of God uh, for created things, and they worship idols. Uh, Jewish people, religious people are also under sin just as much as Gentiles because even though they have the law, even though they possess the law, they are the, the keepers of the law, as it were. They, they possess it. They haven't obeyed it. They haven't done it. And so uh, the, Paul says, Israel, it's not enough to simply have the law. You have to obey the law. And if you don't obey the law, then you might as well not even have the, the law. And so Romans 1 through 3 the, the wicked Gentile pagan is under sin and under God's wrath, and the, uh, the religious person in the nation of Israel who appears to be righteous is also under uh, sin and under God's wrath. In Romans 3, verse 21, there's a, a marked shift in the tone of the, the text, right? Instead of being about how we are under sin and God's wrath, we, we justly deserve God's wrath. Paul says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So starting in 321, he starts talking about this other, right? He's, he's, he's established that we lack the righteousness that we need to please God and earn God's approval. And so in 321 and following, he talks about uh, this alien righteousness, this other righteousness that is given to us by grace, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by God's grace as a gift. So we trust in Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us so that we can be treated as if we had lived with that righteous life. It's Romans 1 through 3, the wrath of God, the grace of God. And in Romans 4, it's just an extended case study on a test case to see if that thesis of, of imputed righteousness through Jesus actually holds up, right? The idea is if Romans 1 through 3 is true, if it really is true that all humanity is under sin, under the wrath of God, and that the only way anyone can be saved is by the grace of God when they trust in Jesus, if all of that is true, then Paul, I should be able to look at anyone on the planet, just throw a dart randomly at any person and it should be abundantly clear right away that that person is not good enough to merit their own salvation and that that person needs God to save them. If your thesis in one through three is true, then it needs to stand up to, or if that person's dead, then I need to be able to look at any 
person who's died, it should be clear right away that that person was saved not by merit and works, but by God's grace. And so he looks at the, the you know, most righteous person that, that a, a person of the nation of Israel in the first century could think of, and that is Abraham. and shows that Abraham was not saved by his works. He wasn't saved by his religious accomplishments. He wasn't saved by uh, adhering to the law. Abraham was saved by faith. Romans 1 through 3, all humanity is under sin. Their only hope is to look outside of themselves to Jesus so that Jesus might save them and give them his righteousness. Romans 4, that was exactly what happened when we look at Abraham as a test case example. This year, 2023, we pick up in Romans 5. We're going to go through Romans 5 through 8 over the next few months. Lord willing, the goal is to be done by Easter. But if Romans 1 through 4 is kind of the the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, God's grace for sinners, he saves them through Jesus who died for them on the cross. That's Romans 1 through 4. Then Romans 5 through 8 is the the implications of and the outworking of and the the results that kind of stem from that gospel. What what happens when a person believes in, in, in Jesus? What happens when they trust in him? What happens to their life? How is their life affected? What changes should you expect to, to see as part of their new life in Christ. And this, this salvation that they have, how sure is it? How firm is it? Can they lose it? If so, how? If not, why not? These are the questions that Paul tackles in Romans 5 through 8. And he starts that discourse with these first 11 verses talking about how we have been given peace with God through faith in Christ. And how that newfound peace with God results in deep and abiding assurance, which should then animate us and mobilize us to be faithful and persevere even through suffering. That's what we're going to look at today. Jesus dies for sinners. Jesus' death saves sinners. Jesus' death gives sinners assurance. And then as we receive those benefits from Christ's death, we respond by persevering even through suffering. So let's read uh, verses 1 through 11, and then and let's get to work. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more... Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life more than that we rejoice also in god through our lord jesus christ through whom we have now received reconciliation let's pray together lord jesus we pray for these next few minutes as we consider your word together we pray that you would meet us here that you would speak to us we pray that you would encourage us we pray that you would make us more like you it's in jesus name that we pray amen verse one therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ so we've already kind of established romans one through four uh we are all under sin we are only justified by god's grace and now paul is saying since we have been justified so he's he's kind of assuming that if you're still reading his letter you have you're a christian now like you like you, you by this point after reading Romans 1 through 4, you are either appalled by this gospel message that Paul is preaching and you have discarded the letter, or you have embraced his message, you've trusted in Jesus, and now all of us who are here reading, Paul is kind of thinking, we have been justified. That's something, if you think that, that you know, if you're not interested, if you think that the gospel is stupid or, or regressive or too modern or too old-fashioned or, you know, patri- whatever it is, right? If, if you find the idea of trusting in Jesus distasteful for any reason, Paul's assuming that you have, have moved on to something else. And those of us that are still here reading have trusted in Jesus. So since, we've been trust- since we've been justified by faith. So contrasting justification by faith with justification by works or, or merit. The word justified is a legal term. means... Uh, to be declared righteous, right? To, to have uh, the, the legal standing of righteous and not guilty applied to oneself. That's what justified means. And so when Paul says we've been justified by faith, the, the assumption is that uh, at some point prior to our being justified, we had a legal standing of guilty and unrighteous and deserving of death. And now, because of our justification, because of our new legal standing, we are now righteous and deserving of reward and uh, of, of, of life. So we have been justified, declared righteous by God, declared righteous by faith. Kind of pushes back against the the instinctive tendency of the human heart that wants to be justified in and of itself. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I'm righteous enough. I can take care of it on my own. I don't want your help because I don't want to admit that I need your help and I don't want to be in debt to you if I, you know, accept your help. So the default posture is justification by self, justification by works, justification by merit. And Paul says justification comes by faith, not because of anything that we do. So therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God, 
not to be confused with uh, the peace of God, right? We, we see that spoken about elsewhere, Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord and give thanks and pray and bring your requests to God. And then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, so Philippians 4, Paul's saying there's some experience that can be had, that can be enjoyed, uh, a, a deep and abiding contentedness or quietness or stillness in your soul that comes from prayer and the spiritual disciplines. A walk on the beach, you know, like there, there's a, a peace of God that we can experience, this subjective inner feeling, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Here he's saying that we have peace with God, meaning that we formerly were not at peace with God. Prior to being justified by faith, we were not at peace with God. We were at enmity with God. We were at war with God. Which is a shocking statement. It's a shocking statement that, that you, that anyone was at war with God. They hated God and God hated them. There was, there was real and discernible and palpable enmity between God and, and sinners. There is no situation that is more frightening, no situation that is more dire than being at war with, being at enmity with God. The sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful, infinitely righteous, holy God of the universe. If there is ever a situation that you don't want to be in, it's being at war with that being, with that God. And Paul says we were at war with God prior to being justified by faith, and now because of our justification, because we have been declared righteous, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that reality that we were at war with God makes verse 2 all the more glorious, all the more incredible, right? Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we've been given access into the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, right? The, the, the limitless Riches and joy to be found in the presence of God. We have that as Christians, as people who trust in, in Jesus. We have been given access into God's grace. But not only, it's not just that we've been given access, it's that we stand in God's grace. God has given us access into His grace, and we stay, when you stand, you're standing tall, confident, right? Uh, assured, right? You're, you're not groveling, you're not, uh, you know, wincing on the on the floor and and Paul is saying we don't just we don't just possess and have access to God's grace we stand in it God doesn't just begrudgingly uh, allow us into his presence with a you know with with a, a glare on his face thinking you know 
you got in on a technicality on a loophole and if I had foreseen it I would have closed that loophole but since I didn't I guess you can come in here and be with me God welcomes his people into his presence he celebrates their being there with him there's more rejoicing among God and his celestial beings when one sinner repents that then when there's 99 righteous people who don't need to repent God loves and welcomes and celebrates when people come into his presence and we stand in the grace that he has given us access to fully assured fully secure in our positional righteousness with God God has justified us he's reconciled us to himself and he's brought us into his grace and because of that because of how God has justified us reconciled us and brought us into his presence we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Right? The, the gospel message that God has declared us righteous and has uh, called a ceasefire with us and has brought us into his presence and given us deep and abiding assurance, that good news of the gospel is cause for rejoicing. It's not cause for indifference. It's not cause for, uh, you know, not caring, right? We, we, when we gather here, the reason why we sing, when we, when we sing, when we gather together is because we are remembering and rehearsing and contemplating these very truths, justification, reconciliation, grace, access, assurance. These are great and glorious truths that are grounds for, cause for rejoicing. There, there, are, there are caricatures in Christianity of like different segments, right? One caricature is the people who are not big on doctrine, but they're big into emotion. So they speak in tongues, they run around, they jump over the furniture, swing from the chandeliers, but they don't have a strong emphasis on doctrine, and so maybe they even affirm theology that's defective or problematic, right? Some Christians are caricatured as emotion over doctrine. Some Christians are caricatured as they're big on doctrine, the statement of faith, the theology, textbooks. They're really careful to protect the purity of the doctrine, but they don't have a strong emphasis on worship. And, and, and they, they, they lack affection. They lack emotion. As if coming to, to gather for worship is just attending a, a lecture in an academic hall. So they're called the, the frozen chosen. That's what some people call right? They believe in election. They believe that, that God uh, has sovereignly chosen people for salvation. They're very careful with their, with their doctrine. But then when you watch them gather for worship, they look bored. No one is raising their hands. No one is singing with, uh, with, with any sort of feeling right they're afraid to show any emotion lest they accidentally be confused for those other guys that don't have doctrine that's as good as theirs and this this is this is my these are my people this is my tribe right like i'm i'm kind of in that uh group and to be honest we've probably dropped the ball a little bit because 
if you believe all the right things about God, if your doctrine is immaculate, if you've crossed your T's and dotted your I's with all of your theology, then it will affect your emotions and your affections. And if it doesn't, then you're not obeying Romans 5, 2. You're disobeying this. If you don't rejoice in the good news of the gospel, if you believe it and remain indifferent to it, then you're disobeying Romans 5, 2. Christians are not just people who get their doctrine right. They're people who rejoice in the good news of the the gospel. And specifically, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's a question. It's a trick question, so be careful before you answer. Uh, Why did God save people? Why Why did Jesus come and die on the cross to save people? What was the ultimate goal of, of God doing that? And the answer, I mean, you could answer any number of ways, but I would argue that the, the most fundamental answer is for his own glory. God saved people so that God would be glorified and magnified and made to look good and made to look glorious in his saving of his people. The universe is as it was created to be when God is receiving the maximum amount of glory possible because God is an infinitely glorious being. God created the world for his glory. God created humanity for his glory. God, Jesus came to die for sinners for God's glory. The good news of the gospel is most fundamentally about the glory of God. And that is often overlooked and easily forgotten. We tend to rejoice more over what the good news means for us than what the good news means for God. But according to Paul, we are to rejoice in God's glory, not in how we benefit from it personally. The salvation that God purposed and accomplished was ultimately for Him and His glory, and not merely, not exclusively for us and our personal benefit. So we rejoice, but we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which we do, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Right? I was, I was on board with it, Paul. Right? When I was on board with rejoicing, even though I come from a tribe that's not traditionally known for rejoicing. I was on board with rejoicing in the glory of God, even though I might prefer to rejoice in the personal benefits that I receive from. I can get on board with all that, but now you want me to rejoice in my suffering. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone rejoice in... That runs counter to everything that's in me, right? I, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to experience pain. The whole reason why our bodies have 
a nervous system with pain receptors is so that when you feel pain, you stop doing the thing that's causing you, you recoil from it. You run away from pain and it hurts when you bang your head. Because if you bang your head enough, you get a traumatic brain injury and you might die. It hurts when you cut yourself because if you cut yourself bad enough and you're hemorrhaging blood, you might die. Right? Pain is like biologically worked in because we're supposed to not like it, not want it, and flee from it. We're supposed to recoil from it and run from it, which will keep us safe from harm. Our whole experience is based on, I want to suffer less. I want to experience less pain. So when I suffer, I don't rejoice. I try to stop it from happening. So why is Paul saying that we rejoice in our suffering? How can Christians rejoice in their suffering when everything that's in us wants to hate and avoid suffering? That's why Paul says that we should rejoice in our suffering. We should rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Right, So all the bad things that you can say about suffering, and there's a lot that you can say about it, of all of those bad things, right? one good thing about suffering is that it produces endurance. Right? right? It's, it's, you, you, as you suffer, you become more able to endure. This is easily demonstrable, right? When you go to the gym and lift weights, when you do push-ups, when you run, you know, run stadium stairs, whatever, right? Whatever you do, right? You're experiencing pain. You're experiencing a, a form of suffering when you work out. And yet the more you do it, the stronger you get, you build endurance, suffering, right? You know, the shirts that the meathead of the gym say on it, right? Um, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Or, uh, pain is just weakness leaving the body, right? They're kind of stupid. But they're tapping into something that's, that's, uh, that's, that's true, right? They're tapping into this idea that suffering is what produces endurance. If you want to endure, then you have to suffer. If you want to become a more resilient person, then you have to suffer because suffering produces endurance. And then endurance produces character, So the more you suffer and the more you endure and the more you experience these things, it actually shapes you and solidifies you and kind of forms you, right? It goes from being an anomaly, I'm a weak person who happened to endure through suffering, to I'm actually a a, a strong, anti-fragile person. Because the suffering and the endurance has shaped me and formed me and grown me into a better person person. If you never suffer, you will never grow. You'll stay the same that you are right now for your whole life. But if you want to grow, and if you want to change, and if you want to become better, you have to suffer. If you want to become smarter, you have to suffer. If you want to become stronger, you have to suffer. If you want to become a better uh, spouse, you have to suffer. A better parent, you have to suffer. If you want to love other people better, you have to suffer. If you want to become a better friend or a better church member. You have to suffer. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. 
And character produces hope. Meaning that the more I grow, the more my character uh, develops. The stronger I get, the more endurance I have, the more character I get, it starts to have traction and it just be, it's, it's a snowball effect. You start, it's running downhill instead of uphill, right? If you, um, right, the working out thing, right? If you, what, what, which, what is easier? Uh, you, someone says, I'm going to, um, I want you to sit on the couch all day, every day, eat Cheetos, watch TV, five years, don't do anything, don't move from the couch, and then on day one of year five, you have to get up and run a mile. Or, someone else, uh, scenario two, you get up every morning and you run, you start by running a mile, you work your way up two, five, you know, not, not, by the end of year five, you're running nine miles every morning, and someone says, I want you to run ten miles today. Is it easier to go from running zero miles in a sedentary lifestyle to one, or to go from nine miles actively every day to, to running ten, right? Because the more that you have, the more that you've built this character, right, it becomes, it, it's, it's, you, you're more hopeful that you can continue to, to grow. As, as you build momentum in growth, personal growth and development, you have more hope that you can continue to, to grow. You become more hopeful because you have more momentum. So, so suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So Paul says the reason why, that is kind of a, an if-then, kind of a domino effect. Suffering, endurance, character, hope. But the reason why, the, the through line that kind of drives through all of those things is because God loves you, right? Suffering leads to growth and development, it, right? If God didn't love you, if you lived in a, a cold, dark universe, a dog-eat-dog world, then suffering would be bad. It, you, we would not want to suffer because what's the good that's coming from it? But, but the reality is that, that suffering happens because God allows for it to happen, and God is the one who is in control of suffering. He loves us. He cares about us. He pours his love into us. Your suffering and all of the suffering that you are ever going to experience in this life, it was all curated intentionally by God who loves you and who is never going to let anything happen to you that is not for your good. That's why we rejoice in our suffering. Because suffering is not just the triggering of our pain receptors that are supposed to tell us to run away for our safety. Suffering is something that is allowed and ordained by God for our good, for our sanctification, so that we can grow. That's why we rejoice in our suffering. And that's why we gather here, so that we can prepare ourselves to respond well to suffering when it comes, so that we will be able to rejoice when, right, you know, the, the team that wins 
on Sunday. The NFL team that wins on Sunday wins because they prepared from Monday to Saturday. The, the military that goes and wins a war wins because they prepared for that war back home during peacetime. If you want to rejoice through suffering and persevere through suffering as a Christian, then you have to prepare for suffering now, which is why we gather. We don't gather here so that like you can, so I can give you a little pep talk. We don't gather here so I can tell some jokes or a story that's moving or emotional so we can all leave slightly happier than we were when we got here. That's not why we gather as a church, and that's not why I preach. When we gather, and when I preach, I'm trying to prepare you to suffer. When we gather, we are preparing one another for death suffering and death. We gather here so that when we suffer, which we will, and so that when we die, which we will, we will be prepared for it. And the only way that you will be prepared for suffering is if you, is if you prepare for suffering, right? You have to prepare for it now so that you will be ready to rejoice in it. You have to reinforce those theological truths in your head. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not disappoint because God loves me. I need to drill those deep into my soul and deep into my heart now so that when my child dies, so that when I'm fired, so that when I'm diagnosed with cancer, I will have a framework, I'll have a category to rejoice even in that. If you don't prepare for suffering now, if you don't build a theological foundation of rejoicing in suffering now, you won't rejoice in suffering. You'll hate it, and you'll resent God for it, and you'll walk away from the faith. So we need to prepare for suffering now so that we will rejoice in suffering then. Rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces endurance and character and hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been put. Look how. So, the through line that drives all of that forward is God's love, and look at how God's love is then expressed and, and exhibited in verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you ever have any doubt as to whether God is good, as to whether God can be trusted, if you ever experience suffering and think, I don't know if I can trust God through this, I don't know if God really is good, I don't really... I don't know if God really has what's best for me in mind. If you ever had any doubt about how good God is, Romans 5, 6 through 8 should put that issue to rest for you. Jesus died for you when you were ungodly. 
Paul's giving particular attention to the timeline, right? At the right time, the timing is very important, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Here's what that means. Righteous person. Someone who is right. Someone who is not wrong. Someone who is, they're in the right. They're without guilt. They're without fault. They are innocent. That's, that's, what, uh, is, that's what this word righteous means. And Paul is contrasting a righteous, right person with a good person. The connotation of the good person is not just that they're right and they're not wrong and they're without fault and they're without blame, but it's that they are actively, sacrificially good and kind and honorable, right? The, the righteous person is someone who simply hasn't done something wrong. The good person is someone who has gone out of their way, above and beyond, to do things that are good and kind and bless others. And so Paul is saying, no one's going to die for a righteous person. Maybe, someone, right, if, if someone came to you and said, I would like, for, please sign this, saying that you will sacrifice your life for this person. And you're like, well, maybe tell me about him before I sign that. And they say, happy to. He didn't cheat on his taxes last year. He didn't punch an old lady in the face and take the money out of her purse, right? He, so he's a righteous person. Then you'd say, well, that, I mean, I don't know if I want to give my life for that person. Like, I'm glad that he did. That's, that's like boil. Like that's bot. That's baseline, right? That like I'm. I'm not sure that I'm willing to give my life for someone simply because they didn't cheat on their taxes. Now, imagine you're dying of cancer, and they say, "There's no hope for you unless someone donates their pancreas. You're going to die." And that's very rare, so you're probably going, you should go get your affairs in order. And then a week later, they call and they say, this is crazy, never happens. Someone drove up here, heard about your predicament, asked to be tested. They're a match. They want to donate their pancreas. So come on down here. We think we can save your life. And not only that, but he's independent. He's rich. He's independently wealthy. He wants to pay off your house all your kids college, give you millions of dollars, no one in your family has to worry about money for, for generations. And then someone says, would you sacrifice your life for that person? That's the distinction that Paul is getting at here. No one sacrifices their life for other people just because they simply have not done something egregiously wrong. They might, maybe, sacrifice their life for someone who is incredibly good, incredibly kind, incredibly generous with them. They might die. No one would die for a righteous person. For a good person, someone might dare to die. But here's God's love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ didn't die for us when we were righteous, Christ didn't even die for us when we were good. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. 
This is the most incredible, remarkable news that you could ever hear in your entire life. Jesus did not die for you when you were a good person. He didn't die for you when you were a righteous person. He died for you while you were, a, while you were actively sinning against Him. While you were at enmity with Him. While you had declared war on Him. Jesus, you hated Jesus and Jesus loved you enough to die for you. You were running from Him, rebelling against Him, rejecting Him. And Jesus died for you in that moment. He left His throne in heaven, came to you. He was arrested, convicted, beaten, executed bore the wrath of God for you, and he did all of that while you were actively sinning against him. That's how much Jesus loves you. It's the most incredible news that you could ever hear. And it's why I said if you ever have any doubt about whether God loves you or whether God is uh, you know, allowing you to suffer for some reason that's for your good, you need not look any further than Romans 5, 6 through 8. It establishes the surety of God's love for us. And then in 9 through 11, Paul is going to show the, the result of this love of God for us and how it results in profound and unmovable assurance so that we can know and trust and have confidence that God has saved us and is going to keep us. He says, Since therefore, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is a, a rhetorical device called uh, argumentum a fortiori, an argument from from the greater. Right? It means that that um, you know you have an argument that you you prove the second proposition. Right? You, you, you establish the first proposition and then the, the truthfulness of that first proposition establishes the truthfulness of that second proposition. If, if, uh, if someone runs a marathon and you say, since we know that she can run a marathon, then it must also be true that she could run a 10K. Right? That's an argumentum a fortiori, right? Uh, the, the second proposition is true because the first proposition establish it, establishes it and implies it and, and, and proves it. And so Paul is using that same logic here to prove that Christians cannot, God will never lose his child. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, right? That happened back while we were enemies of God. We were reconciled by Him through the death of His Son. 
how much more now that we have already been reconciled shall we be saved and and kept by his life he's saying i get that it's easy to wonder if your salvation really is sure i get that it's easy to wonder if god actually is going to follow through on his promises i get that it is easy to to doubt and wonder but uh but consider as you contemplate the surety of your eternal salvation and whether or not God could lose you, consider first the reality that Jesus died for you while you were a sinner. If Jesus was willing to die for you and save you while you were a sinner, then how much more so is he going to be willing to keep you now that you are his child? Two more scenarios. Scenario one, your mortal enemy, right? Someone who, someone who hates you, they're trying to kill you. You've got a restraining order put out against them. You go to witness protection. You've got to move states, change your name so that that person can't find you because if they do, they will kill you. And imagine if someone asks you to sacrifice your life for that person. What's the likelihood that you would sacrifice your life for that person who hates you and wants to kill you? That's scenario one. Scenario two, you're a parent. You have a three-year-old son. Someone asks you if you would be willing to let your son stay with you in your house tonight and sleep in the bed that you bought for him, in the room that you made for him. Or, or instead, are you going to let your three-year-old son sleep outside in the cold because you don't love him anymore? Which one of those is more likely? That you would sacrifice your life for your mortal enemy who hates you, or that you would keep your son, your child, your flesh and blood with you and take care of him instead of abandoning him? Paul's saying, if you ever had any doubt about whether God would abandon his child, all you have to do is consider and realize that he died for that, he died for that child before, it was, he died for that child when that child was his mortal enemy. Jesus died for you while you were his enemy, so now all the much more will he keep you and hold on to you now that you are his child. The, the demonstrable truthfulness of the, form of the past tense reality that Jesus died for you proves and establishes the surety of the future tense proposition that Jesus will keep you. Jesus did die for you. That happened. That's a historical fact. And he did it while you were his enemy. And so the question of whether Jesus will keep you now that you are his child, that question is settled. The debate is over. You can know with absolute certainty that Jesus will keep you forever because Jesus died for you while you were his enemy. That's how much Jesus loves you, and that's how much confidence and assurance that you can have in the salvation that Jesus purchased for you. 
And more than that, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus has saved us. Jesus has reconciled us to God. Jesus has given us access into the grace of God that we stand in. And because of that, we rejoice, we celebrate, we sing with deep and abiding joy. We used to be separated from God. We used to be alienated from God. We used to be cast out of His presence, but now we've been brought near into His presence, justified by faith. We've been given peace with God. We've been given access into His grace. The death of Christ gives us, as Christians, full and deep assurance and confidence to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that our eternity is secure indelibly it cannot be changed and because of that we rejoice we rejoice in the glory of God we rejoice in our sufferings even though we hate them even though we don't want to go through them we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that they will sanctify us and shape us and form us and make us more faithful because we know that our suffering was allowed by and overseen by a God who loves us and cares for us and who will never, ever let us go. Friends, Jesus died for us to save us from our sin and keep us forever. And in light of that, we rejoice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life for us, that you died on the cross for us while we were still sinners. We thank you that we've been justified by your blood through faith and trusting in you. We thank you that we have peace with God, that we've been reconciled to God. We thank you that we have assurance and eternal security because of the death of Christ. And Lord, we pray that we could be faithful that we could rejoice in the glory of God and that we could rejoice in our suffering. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.